Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. I think we're up to episode 58. Uh, this is going to be a little noisy. My wife's going to be transitioning in and out of here. I couldn't stop her. Uh, she had a question for me, though, which is, uh, do you have to do your podcast right now? Because I am, and I said yes, because I've in 50 minutes from now, I have my first call of the day, and then I have three more throughout the day. I have to run out and deliver something to someone. I've got to go to FedEx. I've got to go then meet another person, and I'm on a clock. I'm on a timeline. And I said, yes. So if she, I just heard her sneeze. So she's going to sneeze and come through and she has not had her coffee yet. I made it for her step one, but she has not had it. And that is not good because that's like, I don't know. That's like a caged animal that you don't want to get anywhere near until that coffee's been consumed. So we, this may or may not work. One of the questions, and, and to my wife's question to me, do you have to do your podcast now? One of the questions I get a lot through a variety of channels, and I've gotten this for a long time, is how do you produce so much content? Like how are you, how's it possible for you to do the podcast and your site and YouTube and Blurb YouTube and Blurb stuff and AG23 and all that? And it's because, one, I typically have a schedule, and also I just know I have limited time, so I can't procrastinate. And I can't imagine just sitting around and not doing anything. If I have a gap of time, I'm not watching TV. I'm not surfing the internet. I would much rather do something. I would much rather practice something. And so uh, this is, I'm going to get to this point in a minute. It's our, it's our third point of the day, but I want to start to start off before I get ahead of myself. I want to start off this podcast with, with the normal formula, which is who is this for? And, uh, this is for any, anyone who thought jazzercise was a really good idea. And then if you decided to wear your jazzercise kit around town. And I just saw this the other day. I saw a man who was wearing basically, it looked like Olivia Newton-John, from which I love Olivia Newton-John. Everyone does. In fact, I was with a friend last night who said, we were talking about uh, like 70s icons, and I can't remember who the lead female was that we were talking about, a star or celebrity at the time, and my friend said, oh, I liked Olivia Newton-John too. Everyone did. But that kit now, walking around in public, it's like wearing your bike shorts to a restaurant, right? I mean, I see bikers and cyclists at like coffee shops all the time, whatever. And by the way, if you've never ridden over 50 miles on a bike, you, that will tell you exactly why you want to wear a kit like that. But I, I tend tr to try not to wear mine in like public places unless I have to. I get it. So if you thought Jazzercise was good and you're still rocking that outfit now, 24-7, even on like planes and at the office, then this podcast, I think you're going to find yourself at home. And also, this podcast is for anyone who jumped the gun by like 40 years and got way ahead of this because you looked kind of off at the time, but now you look genius. And that's for, for people who wear the tinfoil hats. You know, the tinfoil hat people have taken a ration a beating for 40 years, but the truth is now with these pulse weapons, these pulse energy attacks that are happening, you're ahead of the game. Those, that pulse energy is going to bounce off the tinfoil hat, guaranteed, and you are going to be fine. So who knew that you were ahead of, ahead of your time? But you are. The hero of the week is whatever high school kid flew that drone on Mars. And I know it's a high school kid. There ain't anybody my age flying a drone on Mars. I guarantee it. Even if that's what NASA says, you know they're hiding some, some savant in the back room who's like 12, and he's flying the drone on Mars. Because now it saves all of us from having to get a drone and try to fly on Mars. It's been done. Mars is the new Iceland. You don't ever want to get on a plane now to Iceland with a drone. We all know that. It's been done to death. Every single square meter of Iceland has been filmed in 4K, cinematic, beautiful, and there's no reason to ever go again. 
And so Mars is now off the table. It was like the first cell phone mobile photography book in 1997. I think it was Robert Clark and Sony Ericsson. Once he did it, it's done. There's no reason to do it or think it's novel or new or interesting. Now you just do books of photography. It doesn't matter what camera you use, right? We all, we're all on board there. Our goat of the week, this was an easy one. Very, very easy. And there's a sub-goat, too. The goat of the week is Rick Santorum for his comments about North America before Whitey arrived and how there was nothing here and no culture and nothing of substance. This literally came out of his mouth within the last two weeks at a national event and has been broadcast. This moron who basically underlying that is a racism of like world-class order, right? You don't, I mean... And here's the crazy thing about living in a state that has a, a huge Native American population is that this is common. This is like I'm married to a Jewish woman. I hear anti-Semitism all the time, and it has grown over the last – the previous four years, the previous administration. It grew at a rate that I've never seen in my life. There were so many things that happened in Orange County before we left that were anti-Semitic, and everybody who claims that they're not, and not everybody, but a lot of people who claim that they're not anti-Semitic, and then, and then they, the, the, their, their next word is but, and then they drop some horribly anti-Semitic line, um, they're out there. And this sentiment about North America and, and, and how we came here and what we did and what we are still doing when you consider things like selling off land to drill uh, lack of education, lack of water, lack of electricity, corruption. We are still doing this to, to the Native American society. Well, how about the, the Dakota Access Pipeline? Watching what they did to those folks in the middle of winter, that is a war crime, in my opinion. That is an absolute crime, what was done. So for Santorum to get up and do that, it just shows a world-class level of being t tone deaf, lack of knowledge of history, and racism of the of the highest order. So he is definitely the go to the week, and, um, and I'm sure he can probably do it again because anyone who would utter that kind of sentence. And also, shame on CNN for having anything to do with this clown. Uh, it's enough, right? He's a propagandist, and now we know a world-class racist, so he's my go to the week. And I would just go ahead and, and not even go to the week, scum of the week. I think he definitely fits the scum, scum label, not even goat. He's going to surpass the goat. By the way, I have a friend here in town who milks goats. True story. And... Um, and last night I had a little sample of a pastry that she made that included goat cheese from her milking the goats, which is pretty cool. Think about it. Hey, where does your food come from? Uh, a lot of people don't know. And uh, I don't know either. I don't know all, where all of it comes from. And that is a major story. So uh, that leads me to my first point, which, God, I tied that in so masterfully. So had some folks over the other night who I'd never met, and they're both very intelligent, uh, very interesting people, well-educated, well-traveled, you know, just, in, you know, people who are interested, who are constantly looking for new things and educating themselves and just, you know, trying to learn and experience whatever we have to, to live on the planet here. And AG23 came up, and we were talking about the zine, and I showed them the zine, gave them a copy of the first and second issues in a slipcase, and we started talking. And one of the, the questions in there, one of the first story in the zine, the second issue, is a regen agriculture by Courtney White, who's a writer here in Santa Fe. And one of the folks who had come over was like, you know, I don't really know a lot about that. You know, what is that exactly? And so I talked, we talked about regen ag and low-till, no-till agriculture and sort of the benefits of it and, 
and you know why is ranching and farming bad for the environment? Why is it good for the environment? All the different things we talked about. And one of the questions that this person had was, if you were going to farm somewhere in New Mexico, where what untouched piece of farmland would you want? And I was like, God, I got to think about that for a second. Uh, you know, there's some of the farm farming areas in the south which are more of like big production farming areas, but I wouldn't necessarily want to live in that part of the state. And then up here in the north, we've got these small parcel, you know, myodormo acequia um, properties where, you know, I still know a guy up there that farms with a burrow and an old metal plow kind of thing. So it's very small plots of land and very, which I love. I think it's really incredibly interesting. But I, what I said in return was there is no untouched farmland. And in fact, I said, there is no, there is no wilderness left in the American West. But let me explain that. Yes, we have designated wilderness areas, including the Gila, which was the first one ever designated in the United States, which is in the southwestern part of the state. And we also have national parks, but those are government authorities over the top of that. You've got the park service in, in, in some cases, and you've got state and local and federal, and there's no freedom inside those places outside of you can camp here or do this, but you can't do X, Y, Z, P, Q, R, T, U, S, all of these. You know, there's so many different restrictions. Those are not, and, and I'm very much glad we have these. And even if you were to incorporate new wilderness areas or new national parks, we're going backwards at a, at a rate that is just completely and utterly unsustainable because we're selling off land much quicker than we are designating wilderness areas. So there will be more people in these places more people on less space. That, that's the future of our country unless we make some drastic changes, which I don't think we have any chance in hell of doing. But my, my follow-up to this person was, there is no un, there's not only no untouched farmland here, there's no untouched wilderness in, left in America. You know, the frontier was closed in the 1800s. It was considered, uh, you know, basically there was no more frontier in the late 1800s. And, you know, we're a long way from that. So... Yes, you can still go out and find some places where you're alone, but that's getting harder and harder to do. I've just seen, even just during the COVID year, looking at the exponential explosion of people out in these places, I've seen it firsthand. So we have sold, divided, drilled, and developed as much as we possibly can, and that is going to continue. So these big ranches that can no longer sustain ranching are being sold to developers who cut them into 40-acre ranchitos. That destroys all the natural corridors. Then you've got people who are often from the city who are looking for a second or third home, who want a piece of the frontier, who don't necessarily understand those ecosystems come out, and then the problem is exponentially worse. And once those are developed, it's it's done. You know, the um, they're not coming back. They don't very, 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 very rarely will ever. In fact, I've never seen it happen where a ranch is sold off, subdivided, and then someday it goes back to being a ranch. I've never seen that happen. So every time we lose a big ranching operation, even though those ranching operations, there are, there's an upside and a downside to ranching operations and farming as well. But they are, when, when they are gone, they're gone forever. And so I think a lot of folks who, uh, especially if you grew up in the cities, you may not understand this because you maybe haven't spent a lot of time in the open spaces, what's left or the West. But that's something that I think is really important is that there is no untouched space. In 2017, I went back to Wyoming, talked to my dad's ranch partner, and I said to him, you know, God, how nice would it be? I was sort of dreaming to him and saying, hey, man, I would just, you know, my goal was to move back here 
instead of New Mexico 20 years ago, but that didn't work. And I said, God, you know, I've always had this idea of having, still having, getting back to being in Wyoming at some point. And he's like, there's someone in his, his response was there's somewhere, someone in every draw. So if you think you're going to find some property that's hidden somewhere that no one's found, that's not happening. And so that's a reality that I think we all have to think about. Okay. So point number two, numero dos. I get asked a lot about personal projects and doing personal projects, which is my favorite thing to do with a camera. Personal projects is really the only thing I want to do with a camera. So, and that's kind of what I tried to do for my whole career. And I did that through a variety of different ways. For four years, I worked for Kodak in the late 90s, and that way I didn't have to do any photo assignments I didn't want to do. I took all my free time and money, and I traveled, and I did projects, which, and that worked really well. Plus, I got all the free film paper chemistry I needed from Kodak, and that was awesome. Then I went back to being a photographer, and the whole editorial commercial side of, of my life, that was really hard because it was hard to make enough money to like really then go travel and do the projects I wanted. And then the portrait wedding side of my life, which was very easy to do because I made exponentially more money and then had the time. And so I did that for, for years as well. But now I don't really do, I don't have the time in my life to do personal projects. I, I, I have tentatively, I have a project going right now, which is 800 miles away. And I can maybe work on it once or twice a year. And now I blew it because it's already 97 degrees out there every day and high wind. And now I'm screwed until fall. So that's off the table. So the only sort of the thing that sort of supplanted that is the zine project is AG23. And yes, it's not my work in the zine, but I'm one of the primary people behind it, which is curating, searching for editing and packaging work that's coming in from other people. So that's actually more rewarding for me in some some ways because it is fun I delivered uh, someone here in town their first this they're in the second issue I delivered the copies to them which is something I'm going to do right after I get off this podcast as well I've got another person I'm going to deliver their their copies to and they were really happy and they wrote and said you know I can't believe you pulled this off and you know how do I help promote this and can I can I buy more copies which you know was kind of astounding. And I was like, no, you can't buy them. We'll give them to you. And she's like, I'm going to send these out to X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, okay, this is really cool. She, she's excited. Plus the people in the photographs, she has already said they are going to freak out. They are going to be so happy and proud that they're in this. And can we get copies for them as well? And so that's sort of what's supplanted my doing projects because the work life just doesn't facilitate me getting going into the field for a few weeks at a time without having to be on calls all day long. So it's weird. I thought about it this morning. I woke up and I was like, man, I would love to just take a single camera and a single lens and my audio recorder and go to the border and find a new project on the border. Cause the border is within striking distance for me. It's two and a half hours away. I love the border and I would wanted to actually go back to some of the exact same places that I worked 30 years ago on the border just to see what the difference is. Um, there's a wall story I want to do, but I don't have the time to do that. That's not happening. I could go for like a day or two days maybe, but that's not worth even contemplating, right? I could get maybe a single image and an audio file, but I can't do anything in depth. So I just scrapped it. And the short answer is I really don't do personal work anymore. And I can't see that changing 
anytime soon unless there's a change with my job or you know we decide to change our lives in some weird way or I win the lottery or who knows but that's that's where I'm at right now uh number three so this ties into what I had said very early on in this podcast which was about people ask me how do I produce so much content and my wife saying you have to do this now so creativity for me is I guess kind of something that came naturally to me kind of I'm just putting myself on the bottom of that scale really creative people and people that at the other end of the spectrum who have like maybe not discovered their creativity yet I'm I'm on the low end of that scale and I know this because for the last 11 years for blurb I've traveled the world and I've met a lot of other creatives who are way beyond where I'm ever going to be. But I, but I like it, so it's a big part of my life. So I have to work at it. I have to practice. Like photography to me is a skill that requires practice like yoga does or riding a bicycle. You have to just get into form before you become the photographer you actually are. And one of the things that I like to do is I practice and I practice with things that the vast, vast, vast majority of you will never see, but they're exercises I do all the time. So I write a lot for Blurb. I make videos for Blurb. I work with the marketing department, sometimes with the engineering UX product. Uh, I have a call today about educational outreach, which we used to have in, in major form back in the day. So I have a lot of that stuff going. And then, but what I do is when I have... I, I give myself exercises to practice things that I may or may not ever utilize, but they sort of help keep me in shape because there's nothing worse than like sitting around as a creative and doing nothing, watching TV or surfing the web, which kills an enormous amount of time and really doesn't return a whole lot. And so to do an exercise, and I, and I get a lot of people like cocking their head at me and tilting like, why would you do that? One of the things I have going on right now is called failed beginnings. And the idea was it's a writing exercise where I thought, okay, I'm going to write a single paragraph that starts out in one direction. And then the last sentence will be so horrible and horrific and will turn the plot back in a direction that the reader had no idea was coming. And to make it the most twisted, awful thing that they, you could possibly imagine so that it would leave the reader just sh shocked and like, oh my God, I can't believe you wrote this. That was my plan. Now, besides a couple of really close friends, I would never share these with anyone. I could never read these online. I read the first one to my wife and here's what happened. I did the first paragraph of the first one and I was laughing and I thought, this is really funny. And again, it's just a writing exercise. It's to get my brain to think about writing. And then I did a second one which I think is really good. And, and, and I sent it to a friend, and a friend said, dude, this is really good. This is a, the beginnings of a really good story. And it involved photography, Mexico City, an earthquake, and a guy being trapped in his dark room um, knowing that he's not getting out. Basically, that was it. And so that one sort of d evolved into something legitimately good. Then I did a couple that were truly twisted where I read one to my wife and the look on her face when I finished the last paragraph was just this look of, I can't believe I'm married to you. You are the devil incarnate that you would have thought that up. And I'm like, I'm a dude. This stuff is going through our heads all the time, all the time. 
Then I wrote a third one, and then I wrote a fourth one, and now I'm writing one that I even feel bad writing that it's so bad. Because again, the whole thing starts out as like Mayberry. It's like wonderful, a couple making a visit to the border, and then by the the last paragraph, you go, oh my God, I cannot believe you took it in that direction. You are the devil. And so again, it's just practice, and it's a lot of fun. These are never going to be seen on a scale. They are never going to make me money. They are never going to return anything other than me staying sharp because I will take something like that and then I will get an assignment from Blurb to write something like a blog post. And these are typically like technically technical blog posts, thousand words a piece where I'm writing about some very specific thing with very specific wording and SEO, but I can do them one after the other. Boom, 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 boom. I can write three, four, five thousand words a day because I'm using these other creative things for practice. I do the same thing with photography, and now I'm doing the same thing with filmmaking. At least I'm at least I'm trying to do that with filmmaking. But anyway, it's practice. It's creative practice. It's fun. I make test books for the same reason. I make them, no one sees them, but I do something weird or odd and I look at it and I go, oh, that looks really good or that's horrible and I can't show that to anyone. If you don't do it, give it a shot. Okay, point number four, it looks more and more and more likely that the Yamaha TW200 is in my future. Uh, I think I've found where I can buy one and I've got a trailer hitch uh, holder for the bike that's a, a hitch mount. In the back, there's a back of problem is there's a third piece of this that I need, which is, is a piece that goes into my trailer hitch on the back of the van that allows the, the moto holder, the carrier, the rack that's holding the motorcycle on the back of the van, it allows it to swing out so that I can access the rear doors of the van. Right now, that's not even in fabrication. They're backordered until June. They're not sure when they're coming. They can't keep up with the pace because the company also makes bike racks for bicycles, and that industry has exploded since COVID, and no one can keep up. So the, the carrier itself, backordered. The, the attachment, backordered, not even fabricated, and the motorcycle is the one piece that's out there. The problem is when you get a motorcycle, you want to break it in, at least for the first 600 to 1,000 miles. So the, I would have to buy this bike in Albuquerque and then get it here. And I could sort of try to take back roads, but then, you know, the top speed of this bike is like 60 miles an hour. And I don't really want to hammer that thing because it's not broken in. So if the, unless the motorcycle shop can deliver it to Santa Fe, which I'm hoping you would, you would think that they would have a trailer that they could bring bikes to people, but maybe I'm dreaming. But anyway, it's just a Yamaha 200 farm bike. And the more and more and more I think about, like a buddy of mine on Sunday or Saturday drove up north to an area that I had first told him about, and he drove in there. He's got a 4x4. And that whole area, which I can sort of access in the van, but not really, is screaming for this bike because there are so many things in this state in places that I can't get to. And some of these are places that even in a 4x4, it would take you all day to get there because you'd be going two miles an hour, uh, and it would be really tricky. Um, The bike is very simple. This bike is not fast. This bike is not fancy. It's been around forever. The rear tire is 8.5 inches. got like a big ATV tire on the back. The front tire is, I think, 6.5 inches. Very limited suspension. Very limited power. Uh, it's a in terms of bikes, it's it's very very mild, but it has this cult following, which is interesting. So it's looking more and more like I'm going to do this, uh, even if I 
Like I envisioned on long road trips across the country taking this bike, and I might do that depending on where we're going, but in other cases I won't. I'll just take my bicycle. Uh, but for New Mexico in general, this thing is amazing. I cannot wait because it's going to open up. I mean, first of all, there's a thing called the New Mexico Back Road Discovery Route, which starts just across the border in Texas and basically traverses uh, east to west and north to, so north to south the entire state on primarily dirt roads. And this is primarily a dual sport motorcycle route, although I've, I think people have done it in four by fours. Uh, and I was my first or my original thing was to do it on a bicycle, which I still might try to do at least section section by section. But this thing is perfect. I will have to put a what's called a desert tank on it, which means a little bit larger gas tank. It only comes with a 1.8 gallon tank, and you get about 80 miles a gallon. So it's not, you know, you got about 100 miles before you hit reserve, um, which is not going to be enough to do that route. So you can get what's called a desert tank, which is a gas tank that's bigger than the original and clear so that you can actually see what level of gas you still have in the tank. And then you extend your range quite dramatically. And then I would probably get a little one gallon roto, roto packs on the back so that just in case I would have an extra gallon of gas, which, as I said, will get you a long way on a bike like that because they're really economical. So anyway, that's where I'm at. Number five, uh, we had, I'm not joking, everyone sit down, brace yourself. From where you, where you are living, this may or may not be anything big. We had, all day yesterday, we had rain in New Mexico. We had actual rain. I do not remember the last time we had rain like this. We did not have a monsoon season last year. It was the first time that I've, since me being around New Mexico, even going back to the time I was a kid, that we did not have a monsoonal rain season. We just did not get the moisture. We also had a, a pretty dry winter again. And so getting rain is a huge deal. Everyone in town is talking about it. You can see people just standing outside in the rain, staring at the sky because it's been so long. When the desert, when high desert gets rain like this, the, the smell, the amount of different smells that, that emerge are pretty astounding and beautiful. And it's such a wonderful experience because that monsoonal moisture is such a part of the ecosystem here and has been for, for at least the going quite a, quite a ways back in recorded history. And so when you don't get it, it's front and center in everyone's topic of conversation because the drought, we're in a D4 drought, the third one in 20 years. They're even considering making a D5 category because of the droughts that we're going into now are exponentially, they're bad. And so yes, droughts are cyclical. We've had these in the past, but there is a consistency to the modern era here in terms of drought that is beyond what I have seen before. And I was telling my wife, we were driving through the mountains the other day, and there's this long stretch down in this creek that, or little, what used to be a creek, what used to have like, people would camp there. And I, I saw guys fly fishing all the time. It's, com it's completely dry and it's been dry for years. There's no more camping there. There's no more fishing there. The whole, that source of water is gone. And there's a bunch of those here now, which I didn't see 15 years ago. So uh, it's definitely nice. And what, was what I was reminded of yesterday is... You, you would think living in the high desert, and a lot of folks that come here think that New Mexico is a desert. They don't even know that Santa Fe is at 7,000 feet. They don't know the Sangre de Cristos are here or the Sandias. They get here, they're taken by surprise, they get altitude sickness, or they're just like, holy cow, I had no idea. But it's also dry, but it's not a desert. People think New Mexico is a desert. And so one of the things that you have to realize is in the summer, 
when you get rain, it is, and yesterday was the reminder, it is ice cold. It doesn't matter if it's 100 degrees outside. You That rain is ice cold. And also it's normally accompanied by sizable hail, which is what we had yesterday. We had hail on and off all day. And so, and I normally keep a throw padded throw near my vehicle because during the summer, so many people get hail damage on the cars because it just comes out of nowhere and it's 90 degrees. And then all of a sudden it drops to 55 degrees and the cold fronts ram the warm fronts and you just get massive hail. And so my, I figure that the only good thing that I have to go in for me is the van, the top of the van, if it gets hail damage, I'll never see it. And the hood is so sloped and it's such a cheap hood. Like the hood on the ProMaster looks like I built it, right? It's so flimsy and, you know, there's a lot of plastic on these things. They're just work vans. So it's not like anybody's looking for beauty here. And so I figure, okay, that'll get all dented, but I could probably replace it myself. It's no big deal. And, you know, whatever, as long as the engine and transmission are fine. But I have new, uh, this is a little foreshadowing and I'm not going to give you any details. I've got new rain gear on the way. And having a really good piece of rain gear is absolutely essential, especially if you're up in the mountains at any point from here until winter, because it, when those monsoons come, they are violent and they come fast and there doesn't even have to be clouds in the sky. It can be completely clear. This sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. It could be completely clear the sun out and you're in a downpour that's ice cold. So I have a good piece of rain gear for my, for my cycling adventures, just a top. I don't have a bottom. With the cycling, you know, I try not to get caught out in these things. I try to prepare as well as I can, but the, you've got to protect the top of your body because you get hypothermic really fast. It, it is, I mean, ice cold. I got caught on foot once, literally within a mile of my house, and I ran. And when I walked in the house, my, my wife goes, your lips are blue. I was absolutely f- stone cold frozen, and I like tried to hide under a tree halfway. And then the lightning comes and you're like, well, all I need is to hold a metal rod under this tree to complete this little mission. Uh, and so I was like, I'm going to run. And I, I got home and I was like, I'm, I'm literally chilled to the core. So I've got some new rain gear coming that I'm really stoked about trying out. And it's a top and bottom. And when I saw the top and the bottom, I was like, God, this reminds me of fishing with my dad as a kid. When we would go up to Canada, the Northwest Territories, and we would fish. And it didn't matter what time of year. You had to have really good rain gear. Because when you're out in a little 18-foot Lund boat in the middle of nowhere and these big storm fronts come in and you're sitting in this thing for hours, just get in a downpour trying to fish, if you don't have good rain gear, you are hosed. You might as well just slip over the side with some concrete shoes, my friends. Okay, so stoked about rain gear on the way. Okay, point number six is about learning photography. And... My YouTube channel has a fair amount to do with photography. You know, I talk about the industry. People send me questions. I make films about film. I make films about portraiture. I make films about dissecting images. I make films about layouts and making photo books and all that stuff. You know, I learned photography in what I would call a very classical system. I went to traditional photojournalism school, which is pretty conservative, right? It's pretty conservative, but also specific in a good way because you're learning from people who actually know what they're doing. Working photographers, academics, combination of the two, plus you're being thrust into assignments in school, like working for the Daily Texan at UT, where you're like working for a newspaper. You're on deadline. You've got assignments. You have to follow, quote unquote, journalistic ethics. You know, you're, you're, you're putting a paper out. And they took it very seriously. And in fact, a lot of folks in Austin 
when strangers would come to town, would recommend they read the Daily Texan over the Austin American Statesman, which was one of the first papers I saw abandon any sense of uh, neutrality in favor of saying this is a political party that we identify with and these are how our stories are going to be slanted. That was kind of shocking to me when that happened. And now it's like it's par for the course for pretty much everyone. You look at a news source and go conservative or left-leaning or whatever, and it's just weird. But I think you have to be careful who you learn from in some ways. But I also think you should try to learn your photography from any source possible that you can think at, look at, give time to. You might find someone online that you are diametrically opposed to, but if you really dig into what they're doing, there may be a kernel of something in there that really helps you or sparks you or gets you to think about things in a new direction. I wish I had broadened my photographic education early on, but it was hard because you got out of school and you immediately tried to start making a living with this stuff, which really eliminated a lot of possibility of the time to explore. And I'm going to get to a point later about this, which I think is really important. But um, if you're going to learn photography, someone wrote in a couple of weeks ago with a question that I thought was really great, which was the person said, look, I'm, I'm a real novice. I'm a total novice, and I don't want to be a pro. I'm never going to be a pro. I just want to get a little bit better. And I think that's really the goal for most of us is we're not – most of us are not going to be pros. We're not going to do this for a living. It's just something that – our hobby or, or craft that we're interested in, and we want to refine it a little bit. I would look for sources of education all across the board. I would look at people that others have told you not to look at, and I would look at the people that everyone has told you to look at. I would also branch out art, art history, those kind of things, um, especially when it comes to lighting. You know, chiaroscuro, that kind of lighting, that was hugely important to me when I discovered that in my one art history class in college, which I got in trouble by faking a bribe to the professor the day before the final. I thought it was funny. She did not. Uh, clearly at all. I, I stole from a line, uh, I think it was from Fletch, and I, she was, we were waiting in the foyer to go into the to building to take the test. And I said, hey, um, can you hold my wallet? There may or may not be $50 in there. And um, she didn't think that was funny. And uh, I think I got a D. It was a mercy grade, like, I don't want to see you again, and you don't want to be here, so uh, I want to give you an F so bad I can taste it, but I don't want to reteach you in any way, shape, or form, so I think I'm going to give you a D. And I was like, no way, my parents are going to be so proud because neither of them graduated and my father got thrown out of three universities. So for them, like a D was, hey, hey it's like your first letter, or your first name, son. Damn, son, you're an academic. So learn from any source you can. It's a good thing. Point number seven, I'm still waiting for my folding canoe, which I pre-ordered and paid for half. I cannot wait to get back on the water. It has been years. I used to, I spent a ton of time in canoes and kayaks and boats when I was younger, uh, all the way from like floating out on a raft in a beaver pond to canoeing with my, my dad and granddad, lots of time in fishing boats all over saltwater, freshwater, up north, down south, everywhere. And I really miss it. And I love being on the water. Now, there's not an abundance out here, but... Because I bought a folding canoe, it goes inside the van. So no matter where I am, I have my canoe. So later in the year, if, if all goes as planned, and there's a lot up in the air right now, much more than there was a couple of weeks ago outside of my control, we may end up in places like New York, Maine, uh, going to the Great Lakes. The canoe will get a good workout. Okay, point number eight. I'm having, I'm having a, an, a, an equipment faulty failure I'm looking at something called a Sony A7C, which is a small full-frame rangefinder uh, that takes full-frame e-glass from Sony. 
uh, I'm, I'm constantly, now that I'm doing motion and stills, I'm constantly tinkering, toying with the idea of how I can get something that allows me to leave other things at home. Also, I don't have a full-frame camera outside of my film cameras, which I'm not going to use anytime soon because logistically I can't. And so I am stuck with digital, and the Fuji stuff is great. I think the Fuji stuff is primarily for me now still still cameras only. There is a tiny bit of motion if I'm on a tripod, which is fine, but uh, I'm looking for something, one, full-frame, two, small, three, affordable, and uh, four, that's kind of it. Three. Let's just stop at three. Four. I don't know. I was maybe I was maybe too excited. I haven't bought this thing. I don't even know if you can buy it. Everything's back ordered now. Everything. Toilet paper. All the good stuff. It's all back ordered. Uh, but that's kind of what I'm looking at. And Sony came out with some recent lenses. The small, like compact, a 42.5, which might be interesting. A 24. It's too wide for me. A 50, which I love. Also a 2.5. But I thought the 40 might might kill two birds. And so 42.5 with the Sony a7, I don't know. I still think a really small, like pancake, even smaller lens, that's maybe an F2 would be better, but I'm sure, you know, the one thing about Sony that, well, there's two things about Sony over the years, the menus, everyone take, they take a beating for, uh, and the size of some of those lenses, which is a problem. If I'm going to get a little rangefinder camera, I want an accompanying little lens that's just fixed. And I want good fall off, I want good autofocus, and also I think uh, some of these newer lenses are the ones that allow you to like click, unclick the uh, so the focus and the apertures move smoothly for filmmaking, and it looks pretty good. It has IBIS built in, which is okay, uh, better on a gimbal, all that kind of crap that we know. But in any way, if you have any thoughts on the Sony A7, and no, I'm not going to YouTube because I'm sure there's 50,000 YouTube films about this camera from 99% of them will go so far in depth technically which is great, but what I need is to see that camera in the hands of someone who really knows how to use it. I need someone that's on my radar list as a photographer using that camera on a still project where I go, this camera works, and that's what I need to see, and I have not seen that. Hopefully, maybe you know someone. Who out there is doing that? What like legitimate high-level dock shooter is using an A7C with a fast lens? Tell me, please. Uh, okay. Point number nine, an update on Paco and Juanita. These are the two Woodhouse scrub jays that have babies on our patio. Last year, they had babies. We, we got to know each other. There was a breaking in process where they were like humans, not sure. We were like, birds, why are you so close to us? Not sure. We got through it, became friends. I saved one of the babies. Juanita remembered. And so this year, they showed up on the exact same day that they did before, the, the year before. We have two more babies on our patio right now. And now we're simpatico. We hang out. And if there's too many people on our patio, she has a net rear entry door now to get into the nest. Everybody knows about Paco and Juanita when they come here, and everybody gives them a wide berth. If we get too close, she will hop up, hop up to us on the ground, give a few squawks like Milner, back it off, dude. And so we back off. I can walk in uh, right up to the nest when she is sitting on the babies, and she just looks at me with these giant little black marble eyes and looks at me like, look at what I did. And so the babies are some of the ugliest creatures I've ever seen, but I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, and I'm hoping that they turn into regular Woodhouse Jays, which are beautiful. But right now they're in that slimy transitory stage, which you just look at and think only a mother could deal with this. So they're here. They're healthy. They're safe. They got through the rain. 
They are protected. I'm constantly on the lookout for ravens or anyone else that might come in and owls that might try to get these babies. And so you come here, man, you better be locked and loaded because I will, I will flat out put you down if you come after my, my birds. Okay. Uh, point number 10, really sorry to see what's happening in India. My heart goes out to the people over there with the C-19 uh, pandemic. We are a long way from solving this, people. I just want to use this as a reminder because here in the U.S. with vaccinated people in particular, it's like spring break. It's like every day people are together gathering. You know, I'm double vaxxed. I'm double vaxxed. And there's a real lack of understanding about what that actually means. And that fact that, yes, I'm stoked that we are getting back to some semblance of normalcy. But we have to take baby steps because if we do not want this to blow up in our, our, our face. And remember, there's a ton of people out there who are not going to get vaxxed. And so we have to deal with that as well. The masks are not going away anytime soon, especially on air travel. And when you look at India, Mexico, Brazil, uh, what's happening in Canada, Michigan, this is a long way from being over. So cuidado. Just be careful, be safe, be smart, and be patient, and we'll all be better off. Uh, I was going to do my typical day, but I'm going to skip it because I want to talk. Uh, this is the last thing I'm going to talk about because I got to go for this call. I got five minutes. So a, one of a YouTuber that I actually really like who's outside of the photo and bookmaking world, totally different genre, uh, uh, sent out a message a couple of days ago. And we've seen this all too frequently as of late. The message was, I am in danger mentally, mental health wise. My mental health is has been destroyed by YouTube, and I have to leave, and I'm taking a break. And boom, see you, goodbye. And so you realize that this has happened a lot in the past couple of years, including some of the most famous people on YouTube have come out and said, my mental health is not good. It almost cost me my marriage. Um, I've got to stop doing this. It's, it'll suck every ounce of life out of your soul if you let it. And so that's it's it's evidence that when you go down that rabbit hole and I've said this before YouTube is about how fast and how, how far you will sell out to the algorithm because once you get your analytics you can immediately see what's what your audience responds to and if you cater to that uh, entirely it's not your channel anymore you're just living to the algorithm and you're going to eventually I don't know a single human on earth that can do that without burning out and so for me, I don't look at the analytics unless I have to, because if, if Blurb says to me, what's your traffic doing? What's your channel doing? I can do that. I can go into the analytics and prove that this is an effective way for me to disseminate information, which is the primary goal for me. Using YouTube as a way to learn filmmaking and to disseminate information about photography, books, cycling, adventure that I think would be interesting and relevant to at least one other person. But if I said to myself, man, you know, I'm going to go down this algorithm path, that would be really soul crushing. And I know this for a fact because I did it with still photography in 1997. I graduated from school in 92. And in 1997, I had a realization that my portfolio was not mine. It was the industries. And I looked at it and said, yes, I got these assignments. I did these images, but these pictures are not mine. They were assigned by someone else and I have no emotional attachment to them. And I quit photography and I worked for Kodak for almost five years. And that saved me. So when I see these YouTubers and social folks, a um, friend of a friend told my friend, he's got 4 million followers on Instagram, whatever. He said, um, quote, my life is meaningless. Because, again, he's living this facade of what his life is supposed to be on Instagram. It's tricky. This isn't a new story. We're just seeing a heightened sort of activity around it. And I was reading something this morning that I thought was pretty amazing. There is a Bavarian, uh, a Bavarian scientist, Heisenberg, 
brought back to fame by Breaking Bad and Walter White's uh, uh, taking over of that name as a moniker to hide from the police and authorities. But Heisenberg was a Bavarian, and he was looking at what the scientists of the day were saying about the atom, and he said, look, I don't believe this to be accurate. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to figure this out. And he was really having difficulties. And he decided to take, he had hay fever really bad, and he decided to take a couple of weeks off, and he went to this remote island off the coast of, I can't remember what it was, Denmark maybe, or I don't remember what country it was. Anyway, he's isolated and alone, and he's doing these long ocean swims. And the long ocean swims, swims were what prompted him to forget everything and start over. And when he did, he ultimately said, I've got to develop a form of algebra to solve these equations. And he, and he did, thinking, I think, initially that he, had, uh, that he had developed some sort of new algebra, which, in fact, was not true. What he had developed was a derivative of something that had come in the early 18, like 20s and 30s that had then been furthered in 1904 by someone else. And then all of a sudden he comes along, and it was called uh, matrix algebra. But what he did is he tweaked it, and it became quantum mechanics. And we all know the importance of quantum mechanics in the world since that time. But the essence of the whole thing was the ocean swim. And that's why I post cycling films and adventure films and the films that are unrelated to this stuff. Because those, to me, as a creative person, are as or more important than the actual creative work. And so if you're living your life online and it's not your life, at some point that wall is there and you're going to slam into it at record speed. So try to avoid that. There's too much good to be done. Okay, I've got a roll. Thanks for tuning in, and I will be back again.